show off what we're doing up here a little bit. Let me see if I can mess this up without totally messing it up. We just moved it a little bit. Just kind of let you see what you have here. This is, um, this is supposed to be a ruined uh, temple in Guatemala um, uh, of the Mayan people, a worship site for the Mayans. And it's part of the, um, the set. It's the set for our Vacation Bible School, which starts this Monday. And uh, many of you are working hard and helping uh, put this together or working diligently in prayer for this effort to uh, evangelize the children in our neighborhood and uh, disciple them in the Word. But I want to take the occasion to just point out uh, this is a picture, a mock-up, ingeniously put together by Kathy Haley and Mike Regal. According to the, the script for this Vacation Bible School we're using, but this is a, um, a picture of a pagan worship site where a human sacrifice would have actually been conducted to the sun god <laughs> by the Mayans or the Aztecs. The, what we know about the Aztec religion uh, and uh, sun worship is a little more extensive. Um, and uh, both Mayans and Aztecs had a lot of, um, had a lot of pagan pantheon, a lot of gods in their pantheons. Uh, and, um, but we do know this, that the step pyramid that they used was designed to get up high where the sun could see them uh, sacrifice their human captives in a very violent and gory fashion uh, as, a, as an offering to please the gods. And um, that doesn't sound like much uh, stuff you would say at Vacation Bible School, and we won't. Uh, the kids could go to Tulum uh, outside of Playa del Carmen, Mexico, where I've seen Tulum, the, the ruins there, or any of the other ziggurat sites in uh, Mexico or South America. They could go to any of these sites and not hear a word about what the people used to do there. But that's what that was for. And there are a couple of things that, um, that creation science advocates will like to point out about this. First is obviously, this is a testimony to human depravity and the need for a savior. The, all the, the pagan worship systems are basically the same thing. They really are. They come out of Babylon and the worship of the ancestors who were then deified. And eventually man finds something that God has created to worship instead of worshiping the creator. And the sun is the biggest thing out there. Now the Mongols worship the, the, the blue sky. They say, that's bigger than the sun. The sun travels in the sky. Our God is bigger. But they're still worshiping the creation. The Canaanite religion that the entire Old Testament is written in part to, uh, to reject. I mean, the whole, you go in the land and don't join the, with the Canaanites and exterminate them. It's all about their pagan worship where they're worshiping the sun god, Baal, who's traveling across the sky. And they have a phallic cult, a sex cult, where they're on the high places, uh, trying to satisfy the base lusts of, the, of their God as he travels the circuit of the skies. That's Canaanite religion, which would also include child sacrifice. And it's interesting, isn't it, that they're doing it in South America. They're doing it in Mexico uh, through um, recent ancient history. The other thing we like to point out, besides the need for a savior who would be sacrificed for our sins, is that this architecture is found on most of the continents of the world. You have the great ziggurat in Ur, which is now in Iraq. Um, it's always been in Iraq, but now we call it Iraq. But uh, Ur of the Chaldees, where uh, Abraham was from. There's a great ziggurat there. Uh, there's one in Korea. I think it's in South Korea. There's one in India. There's one in China. There's um, a bunch. The, the the people that came over the land bridge chasing the, the herds from uh, Europe over into, um, and, and then Asia over into Alaska down to this continent, those people uh, brought that knowledge with them and they built the same thing, the step pyramids. And, and well, that would mean that there's sort of some sort of original unified culture that would have the same kind of architecture that they kind of all remembered. Like, you know how all cultures have dragons? and their legends, and uh, most of them will have some sort of deified version of the dragon. The American Indians did that. The Ecuadorian Indians, I learned when the whole legend or end of the spear story came out, they had to jump over the great boa to get into heaven. Well, we have to defeat a snake to get into heaven. The great dragon of the Chinese pantheon before Buddhism, the great pagan uh, system of the Chinese, was the great highest god was a dragon. 
a big and important snake in our origin stories. See, there's a, there is a unified culture that this type of architecture throughout the world points to, and it is that there was a flood, eight people survived it. On earth, they repopulated the earth. They were supposed to spread out, and God said, spread out. They didn't. They clumped together. That's Genesis chapter 11. And they built, we think, a step pyramid. They, they built this tower that is probably the same architecture that we find all over the world. And God said, okay, well, he came down to see what they're doing there in the gates of God. And he, he divided them up with, by language and therefore families and cultures. And so you found these things in South America a few thousand years later. It's not an accident. It's an echo of the biblical story. And we have a better explanation biblically from what God says in his word about why the unified cultural markings and trappings all over the world than anyone else because it's the truth. This is actually what happened. It's not just our story, our creation story. It's God's history. It's what took place. But the people forget unbelief uh, is noetically challenged. Let me try to put this back up here with some sort of... Well, that's not good at all. Mike, I'm going to move it and you tell me when, okay? What I need to do? That work? Hey, I was once in the S3 for like three days, and uh, we, did, we did PowerPoint. Okay. So tonight, I want to shift gears and talk about the Christian spiritual life. And today, we're calling it Everyday Christian Spirituality. This is a great way to summarize and close our application section of our study of the New Testament miracle of the spiritual life. What you and I enjoy could not have been enjoyed before the Lord Jesus Christ came and was glorified because the Holy Spirit had not been given to all believers. But you do have the Holy Spirit living in you, not just for now, but forever. And he's there for a purpose, as we studied when we looked on mission. In Luke 24 and in Acts 1, the reason the apostles were told they would receive the Holy Spirit was because they had a job. They would be his witnesses throughout the world and make disciples of all the nations. And that mission in which we find ourselves is still going on, and we still need the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. If we're going to be like our Lord, who, as a, as a child in the temple, had to be about his father's business, then we're going to have to be on mission as well. And so I want to talk about the spiritual life in everyday Christian spirituality. Last time we were together, we talked about defeaters, three key to defeaters to being, uh, to walking by the Spirit or enjoying your spiritual life. And the first one was distraction. Distraction of any sort. When I choose to give in to distraction, that's when I find myself defeated and not embracing all that God would do with me by filling me with his word. Personal sin is probably the, what happens generally when we find ourselves distracted, and that will be a huge defeater. Personal sin, as we saw, is to grieve the Spirit or quench the work of the Holy Spirit in us. And then you've got also your first blank, the sins of others. Now, if you're at home, hopefully um, you've been able to see the PDF that is this uh, note sheet that I've got everyone here furiously filling out all the blanks to, uh, to, to work through. Did you get notes? Yeah, okay. All right, so the sins of others. And I want to just remind you, just because someone else does something abusive toward you doesn't mean you have to commit personal sins and forfeit your walk with the Lord. Uh, but it is common. It's the norm. It is understandable that that happens, but it's not an excuse. Someone else sins against you and you react in personal sin. Well, your reaction is on you and you need to take it to the Lord and reject that sin, which has uh, forfeited that walk. You know, we're told in First um, Peter 3 that when a husband does not live with his wife in an understanding way, for she is a weaker vessel, she's a woman, if he doesn't uh, uh, speak to her appropriately and isn't gentle with her like he's supposed to be, that hinders his prayers. And the man can sit in my office and say, but she, and I can say, yeah, okay, keep going. But she, but she, she did this, she said that. I can't imagine that how horrible that must have made you feel. And I understand it's perfectly legitimate that you felt abused by those horrible things that that wicked Herodin said. However, 
you have to make your choice about what you're going to do. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 3, 7, that if you don't live with her, as far as you're concerned, in an under, understanding way, then it stops your spiritual life. It stops your, your prayers from being answered. You need to go and take that sin to God in prayer and restore, be restored. Now let's move forward and talk about what we ended on a couple of weeks ago, why we are here. Or, sorry, who we are, not why we are, who we are. This is who we are. Well, tonight, I want to really emphasize the green box the green box and the blue circle. Can everyone remember that? I, y'all all do, please try to remember the green box and the yellow circle. The green box has the things that you have in there that uh, we could describe as knowledge, your understanding of things, your beliefs, your uh, convictions, or your principles. I know it's really small in the printout, but you can see it up here. Knowledge, understanding, beliefs, convictions, principles. These are kind of set until you learn something new. And remember, this little diagram I'm making is a process diagram of something that's very involved and impossible really to lay out flat and diagram. But you'll see why I'm, why I'm saying there's a cause effect to what you believe versus how you live. And that's what I'm trying to show with the green square and the blue circle tonight. The green square and the blue circle. Now this is set, and you have what you have, and you came here tonight, and the green square may change based on what we learn. We may spend some time in the Word, and your convictions change a little bit. Mine do, because I become more and more aware of what God expects of me. But this is a set thing in you, and you haven't done anything with it yet. It's just in there. It's in your memory banks. It's, it's your set. Uh, there it is, the blue circle. This is what you do with what's in that green box, your thinking and your feeling. The goings-on in the human heart, which is desperately wicked who can know it. But in you, indwelled by the Spirit, when you're filled by the Spirit, thinking God's thoughts according to what you have there in that knowing, in that, in that body of understanding that you have, feeling in response to it. So, Can I say, this is what's in there, and this is what you do with it. See, you can know, and and I can't think about this. This is your life right here. You know what you know, and you know about your spiritual life, and you know about God and His expectations and His love for you. You know all that stuff. It's your theology. And then something happens, and you need to actually use it. Uh Uh-oh. No, 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 no. You actually need to use it. You need to think it through and bring it to bear on the situation, right? And unless you do this part, this is useless. It's just sitting in there, right? That theologian, that that excellent theologian who can't speak politely to a waitress, excuse me, a server, right? He wrote great theology, but he was rude. How does that? Well, he had it in there, but he didn't bring it to bear in that moment. And then your feelings. And you could say, well, feeling isn't part of what's going on in the human heart. Actually, in America, people think that the heart is only the feeling. And they don't know about the thoughts and intents of the heart. But uh, some will say, no, it's only thoughts and intents because the heart is the command center of the inner person, which I believe from a, a, an extensive word study in the Bible. Feeling, though, is where joy and sorrow live and your heart does these things according to the scriptures. And so... You have to connect these two things. The green box has to connect to the blue circle, and that is the task. Once we're thinking and feeling along with what we're supposed to or not, we're going to make choices. A lot of times we have a shortcut. We feel something that is tugged by our sin nature. We make a choice contrary to God's expectation, and then we take action on it. And I told you last time, this action thing this is why you can't really flatten this out and it'd be perfectly accurate because thinking is an action it's a choice to think so this is doing this is actually this process so but I, i do want you to see there is a way to describe this linearly in this little model of the process of coming to live out your convictions live out what you believe your knowledge understanding beliefs convictions principles So this is actually so far a no-brainer. Having it inside is not the same as using it. Thinking about it, having an emotional response is not yet choosing. Okay? And doing the action is definitely a result of our choices. 
So this is what's in there, and this is what we do with it. Got it? See what I'm saying? The thinking of my understanding is not the actual thinking it through. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope, says Lamentations 3.21. I think in this is your conscience. It's what's in there that your conscience has been primed to believe. And here is your experience. And those are two different but related issues. Your conscience, you can experience a defiled conscience because of choices that we make that go contrary to what our conscience tells us. I think you've got another idea here that you could describe this as your worldview. I think this way, but in this instance, I acted this way and they're not the same. I was contradictory in my behavior to my principles. Doesn't mean my worldview is any different. It means that I am inconsistent. I'm a fallible human. And that is a picture of a lacking in integrity. I want to say that when I have integrity, I take what I know from God's word and I live it out, even when it's hard. And so I'm consistent in my convictions and in my practice. So you got worldview and then behavior, and they're, they're related, but they're different issues. And you can see why I think this is a great example. Pulling these things apart like this, to me, is a great, helpful model to think through what is wrong with our country. What's wrong with our people today? The beliefs are not shared, and so the conscience is not the same. What I think is correct and righteous before God in my green box will be regarded as a defilement of popular morality from pretty much any news anchor on TV today, for example. And so we're, our worldviews are completely disparate. We have a conflict of visions, as Thomas Sowell said it. And so my actions, my choices and actions, as I win the battle between thinking and feeling and think first, there will be a consequence here. And by the way, while we're at it, my description of this is all part of my green box. It's theology. It's my understanding of how we are. Some people say you should only go with your heart. Just do what your heart, let your heart guide you. And they mean your emotions. Just go with how you feel. Search your feelings. That violates my understanding of how things should be. So you can see why this model is an attempt to be a, bibl- a biblical presentation of how we are. And it's, yes, it's complicated, but it's not nearly as complicated as when the phone rings and you hear something that you didn't want to hear. Thank you. And now what do you do with it? You're, that, it's all, well, you're here. You have new information and you've got you've to sort this out. And sometimes it's to go back and pull out some things that I know and think it through. Well, actually, I think that's always the answer. <clears throat> the two phases what's in there and what we do with it. And I think you could call this little, pay, this little thing right here your conceptual threshold where you go from your concept. Boy, I love learning theology. I love learning about what love looks like in the Bible and how we're supposed to do it, how to define it, how to get just the essential oils of what love is out of the scriptures, but then to live it. I've got to go from concept to practice. Over here, you've got your practical threshold where we were thinking it through, but we didn't quite uh, carry out. No, you've got to actually do it. That's where it's... Pra- it, there's a lot that goes into actually obeying the Lord as it turns out for his sake or abiding in Christ, if you will. Also, I think you could say that over here, you've got being filled with the Spirit, by the Spirit with the Word of Christ richly dwelling within you is, is about having this in there and certainly him equipping you through that to live the Word. But then Philippians two twelve and 13. Philippians two twelve and 13. Let's turn there. After describing the Lord Jesus Christ and his kenosis and his emptying of his expression of deity, not changing, not, not stopping his deity, but and in, in not expressing it in obedience to the Father and taking the form of a human being, a slave, and, and, and that, that picture of, of the two natures of Christ, okay, in, in this key passage, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, after saying that's how we need to think about ourselves, don't insist on our proper place, insist on God's glory and be about that in submission to him, even to the point of death of the cross and in the image of Christ. Paul will say there is this outcome of this humility, this submission, and that is uh, 
For this reason also, Philippians 2.9, God highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. The reason for the exaltation of Christ in Philippians 2.9 is the humiliation of Christ in Philippians 2.5 through 8. The reason for the exaltation is the willingness to submit to the Father's plan which would require him to be crushed and humiliated. And that is the, that is the important cause-effect link that takes you to verse 12. See, you're in the same pattern. So Paul says, So then, my beloved, just as you've always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, to desire and to do of what pleases God. The willing is not the choosing. The willing is the wanting. The wanting leads to the choosing, and that's the doing. And so I think this is a great description of the Holy Spirit really superintends this whole process. That's why this is everyday spiritual life. This is why everyday Christian spirituality, the Holy Spirit is in charge of my conscience here by filling me with the Word of Christ. And then I am in prayer and empowered by the Spirit in that and living it out. So that now in my walk, my actions correspond to God's Word. And so... The whole thing is to be superintended by the Holy Spirit. Some people think, oh, no, it's just here when we learn. Others think, oh, no, no, it's whenever we need to say something. It's in the living of it out. Philippians 2, 12, and 13, both to want and to do what pleases God. That's one reason the Spirit of God lives in us. So now, let's look at some of the passages that talk about this thinking and doing. We've had Ephesians 5, 18, be filled by the Spirit. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Same results. Remember, those two passages go together because they're two sides of the same coin. Psalm 119.9, you know this one, right? How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. By keeping his way according to your word. Notice the word would be the green box and keeping his way pure would be the living it out. So we've got cause and effect. Psalm 119.11, your word I've treasured in my heart. That's your green box. That's the content of your, of your set, of your worldview. And because it's there and because I choose to bring it out, that I may not sin against you. You have it in and then you live it out. It's inside and you live it out. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, as we just saw. I want you to see that so much of that is living it out, obeying the word, working out the salvation with fear and trembling, willing and doing what pleases God. So that's... Um, that's a little bit of the summary of the New Testament on what I'm talking about in terms of the Holy Spirit equipping you on the what is there phase and then what you do with it phase. It's, it's all his superintending work and uh, we need to rely on God. We need to abide in Christ through all of it. Everybody, I think, functions this way with our set of principles and then whether or not we live them out and do we rise to the standard of our, of our beliefs in these things. But not everybody walks by the Spirit in who they are what's there, and then how they live it out. All right. So what is there? That's our green box. This is your worldview equipment. This is what you believe. These are your convictions. It's, if you will, it's your personal doctrinal statement. It's your set. What is your opinion about blank? Would be a way to think this through. What do you think about X, Y, or Z? To have an opinion about anything, I must have some prior knowledge or understanding about it. To have an opinion about anything. Oh, by the way, the blank here is actually a blank. <laughs> I must have some prior knowledge or understanding about it. Now, this is really interesting. You ever seen the people do the man on the street uh, microphone with the kids on the, on the campus or just on the downtown city streets? And they'll ask him a simple question like, um, like who was uh, Thomas Jefferson? And the kids will like, Wasn't he an evil slaveholder or something like they'll say something if they know anything. A lot of times they'll be like, I don't know. I mean, he sounds like he might have been. I mean, I know he wasn't a president, but um, something and, and they don't know anything, but they've got heavy opinions about everything. Um, but see, that's ignorance speaking. And this is why we need actual education to hold the franchise in this tragic experiment of a country. So knowledge or understanding um, is prior before we really have an opinion. Our opinion, therefore, I'm, I'm calling it knowledge dependent. Your opinion really, it, it, they all are. I mean, if I have a good opinion about something, it's because I have a good set of knowledge about it. And if I'm, I'm completely confused and, um, and hold a strong opinion, but it's the wrong one, 
and God, God is in charge of whether it's right or wrong, um, then it's because I don't have the knowledge. And therefore, the more knowledge we gain about a topic, the greater will be our capacity to have an informed opinion, right? Don't you want to study something out before you start making pronouncements about it? I love when I deal with young people. I camp with these teenagers. I'll try to pick an example out of, you know, out of thin air in the moment. Some kid will talk about, oh, well, I, do, I fly fish. Yeah, that's not how it works. That didn't happen at camp. But just, I mean, there's always something. I remember, I'll never forget, there was this girl that was like an all-state uh, softball player. And uh, she did not like my bat swing technique when I was saying we need to, we need to set up our swing so that um, we, we, we swing the bat all the way around, not just uh, take in the word and don't follow through. You want to take in the word, and then when you hit the ball, you want to go all the way around and follow through and live it out and carry it out. I was doing the, you know, the, the take it in and live it out thing with, with the baseball bat. And she said, no, 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 that's not how you swing a bat. I said, well, it's been a while, and... Um, it was very humbling of me. She said, yeah, you're breaking your wrist what, like, over. That's not how you do it. And I said, well, apparently you were just here from softball camp. She said, yes, I am. Can I show you? And um, I love when the young people help me uh, with my illustrations to see a better way. And, and I also like to show you that it's okay to tell a joke on yourself. Um, in fact, if you have trouble with that, with like people laughing at you, um, then that's really bad. They are laughing at you more than you probably think. And you need to learn to tell a joke about yourself at least once a day. And I mean, this is very serious business about laughing at ourselves. Okay, um, but you need an informed opinion if you're going to have capacity to understand pretty much anything and have an, a, 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 a knowledge-dependent opinion. All right, so let's do an experiment on something that we'll see if we have the, all the facts the way I frame the question. Now, this might be controversial. This might be controversial, but I tried to pick an example that is very straightforward in my mind. Okay, and, um, and Connecticut as a state disagrees with this, but I think Preston City Bible Church as a church is right on board with uh, Genesis 9-6. So let's just see if you can understand what I mean about getting all the facts before you hold an opinion. Was it right or wrong to electrocute Theodore to death is my question. Now think about that kind of, well, no, poor little Theodore. I mean, if you mean the chipmunks, Alvin, Simon, Theodore, that's not, you don't want to electrocute him to death. Was it wrong to electrocute Theodore to death or was it right to do it? And if you're ready to make a decision on that, you probably need to slow down a little bit. What do you mean electrocute and who is Theodore? Anybody have an idea who Theodore was? Yeah. If you know this one, I would be shocked. I really hope you don't. He's not. All right. So on the date, January 24th, 1989, when it happened, after proving beyond a reasonable doubt that he murdered two women and attempted three others. That's what they proved in court. And then later, while he was in prison, after he confessed to 28 other unsolved murders while awaiting his sentencing. In light of Genesis 9-6 and the Bible's view of the image of God. Now let's turn there real quick. Let's, let's refresh our memory banks. Let's make sure our green box is fully apprised of Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. I almost have it memorized, but just not quite enough, which makes me glad we can go turn back to it. I haven't, this is Bible's kind of new. I haven't done a lot of Genesis in this Bible. The other one, Genesis falling apart. All right, Genesis 9, 6 is the Noahic covenant where God is saying, no more floods. I put my bow in the clouds. You know, the rainbow is supposed to be a picture of God's bow. That's the length, cachet. That's, he's saying, I hung my cachet, my bow in the clouds meaning I shot the world with the flood like an archer, and I won't do that again. It's fire next time. All right. Now, you can eat the food, all the animals for food in chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse 3. Don't eat the flesh with its life. That is its blood. There's, there's life in the animal's blood, and so honoring God's gift of life, you don't eat the blood. Surely I will require your lifeblood from every beast. I will require it, every man, man's brother. I will require the life of man. So don't eat blood. And then whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. Genesis 9, 6. For in the image of God he made man. See, it's because of God's image. So when I, who bear God's image, destroy it in myself by destroying what God made as his image. 
So I destroy that image bearer and this one by doing the opposite of what God does. That forfeits my life. Genesis 9-6. That's God's deal with the human race. The only eight human beings alive on earth at that point. Are we ready to go do some capital punishment over here? All right. Corporal punishment, not capital punishment. All right. Now, clearly, Genesis 9-6 makes the issue that man bears God's image. And that's why capital punishment. It is also, in the scriptures, the beginning of man ruling over man. It is implied. All other human governmental functions are now implied because man is going to have to carry this out. It didn't happen with Cain and Abel, but now it happens after Noah. And that has never been rescinded. And uh, they can wave all the rainbows at us that they want, but that Noahic covenant still goes on. And we don't get, no one's really going to co-opt that and take it over. So in light of Genesis 9-6, here's the question. Was it right or wrong to elect, electrocute Theodore to death? Well, you have your held convictions in your green box, and you have new information that you think it through. So here are my convictions. I think murder is wrong. Everybody with me so far? Okay. Uh, God says the murder of man must be executed by men. And this is the part that the world can't swallow because they say, well, you're going to meet that wrong with another wrong. You're going to murder the person that murdered. But it isn't murder because that person has now forfeited his life. And that's God's statement. It's not murder to execute someone. It's not murder to kill in war. And so the Bible makes that distinction. So God says the murder of man must be executed by men. This is because of the importance of bearing God's image and capital punishment honors both God and his image bearer. Now I'll just share with you based on what the word of God said and my meditation on it. This is what lives in my green box about this topic. It's not what the country thinks now. It's not what the government says in Connecticut or California or several other states. I once heard a, a man say that uh, his, his, in many other states, they're trying to undo the death penalty. But in Texas, his home state, uh, they're trying to put in a fast, uh, like a, an express lane, because they're trying to expedite uh, death penalty cases. And um, this man, this, this serial killer who killed so many people, stayed on death row for more than a decade. We fed him and housed him for more than a decade before they finally executed him. So... My, the new information is that Theodore Robert Bundy murdered one or more human beings. I only need one to know what to do about this. And so that is all I need to know based on my convictions to make a decision about the question, was it wrong to electrocute Theodore in 1989? My answer is no. Now you can argue about the method. Well, electricity, that's not the right way. That's really not, it doesn't specify how to do it. So um, you could say that you don't like electrocution. I certainly wouldn't want to experience it either. I find it very deterring. I wouldn't want anybody to be electrocuted and so would totally, uh, totally encourage people to avoid murder. But anyway, my question depends on all these data. And I'm trying to show you that the more information you get about whatever topic, the better you will be informed to make the decision. Uh, chose not to show you any photographs of this uh, human being, this human monster, Ted Bundy. But to me, he's kind of a no-brainer case. So let's review. You have what you understand in the green box over here. It's all that information, all that understanding that God has built in you in your spiritual life. And you have in this difficult blue circle the, the constant interchange of what you think and how you feel. And there has to be a connection between these two things, which will result if you bring to bear what you what your what your beliefs are through your thinking and feeling you will make choices and take actions and this is the arrangement that we're describing and so you've got your conscience your experience worldview behavior and you you can even see that there's a couple of steps that that happen before you even get to an action there with conceptual and practical thresholds we usually don't entertain questions are there any questions about this i'm happy to if it's not communicating All right, so let's talk about the green box. Let's talk about what's in there and how it gets there. You are what you think is what they say, and that's partly true. I think you're, you're what you think and what you do and how those two things fit together. So you've seen this before. Now, where does this worldview come from? Most people don't think about it. In general, the answer is, I believe, authority. 
believe it or not, we put stuff in here because of some external authority. Our mom and dad tell us that color is blue and that color is red, and we kind of believe them, and from now on, that's blue and red. It's power parents have. Authority is some power that either I respect or I fear, okay? In this case, I'm not defining, I'm saying it's, that's how this works, is I fear or respect the person get with the authority who gives me this, this set of principles, and then I have my, my conscience kind of set. Parents, teachers, coaches, friends. One of those doesn't fit in this, this list, but we act like it's everything. Well, let's look at that. Where does authority come from? Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. We just had it the other day, Romans 13. Some of you probably have it memorized, or at least you know exactly what it says. Everyone, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, Romans 13.1. Everyone is to be in, uh, in, in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. And so Paul's view of authority is, uh, it starts with sovereignty, with God's sovereignty. And answers the question, boy, for the Romans, that's very helpful. Okay, Paul, we're supposed to obey our governing authorities. So, let's look at the authorities in life for just a minute. Who are they? Parents, teachers, coaches, and friends. Parents, teachers, coaches, and friends. Now, what is the bounded authority that they hold? What is their authority? Like, you, you know, parents don't have unlimited fiat over their children god has delegated certain things to parents you know that old bill cosby as he said his dad threatened him he said um, i brought you into this world and i'll take you out and i'll make another one just like you we get it it's funny but you really wouldn't you don't have a right to and so parents have a bounded authority everyone does i think this is what parents are supposed to be doing i think about it a lot you might not be surprised check this out hey those of you who have me as a parent watch this we have a divinely instituted right and responsibility to train you or parents have to train us in the restraint of sinful lust and the loving fear of the Lord for lifetime service. Does that pretty much catch it? You have to learn to say no to you and your lust and your sin nature. You have to learn to say yes to God and obey him. And a lot of times it's the same move. No to sin, yes to God. It's a constant move, isn't it? I think that's what parents have to do. There's not, this is not on the notes. This is, uh, this is bonus. But I want you to think it through with me. Parent, this is their bonded, bounded responsibility. What are teachers? Now think about this. If we start with God and we go to teachers, well, where did they get their authority from? Not the village. No, they got it from parents. Teachers are parent delegated with their right and responsibility to train us in the understanding of God's creation. That's what teachers are supposed to be doing. I mean, it really is. Name a subject teachers teach. That isn't something that God made and that he has a thought about. Well, uh, geology, his rocks. But biology, his cellular structures, he made it, he holds it together. While physics, Jesus Christ, God the Son, holds all things together by the word of his power. Anything you talk about, well, okay, okay, fine. English poetry. God made language, he stabilizes language, he holds our brains together to be able to use language. Language is his. See, it's, and this is what teachers are supposed to be doing. That's very humbling, if you think about it. Now, well, but I'm in a school system where I can't do that. Right, I know. You, you need to see that as you're God's smuggler. You're God's uh, agent to work under the, undercover here and find ways, uh, at least in prayer, to recognize this is what teachers are actually supposed to be doing if you believe parents are given divine responsibility, train their children to serve him. What are coaches there for? Boy, you ever think about the power of a coach? Moms of recalcitrant football players know about this. They can't get that meathead to do anything. And then all of a sudden, the coach has infinite power. All he does is stand there and look kind of grizzled, look kind of angry. Says, really? And then the kids all, all straighten up and fly right. 
Why is that? Because the coach can control whether you play or not, <laughs> right? He's got power. But he's got parent delegated a right and responsibility to train us to con- in the conduct of sport. So important, vital. It's a coach to teach us how to play a game and make sure that we play it uh, according to his plan and game plan and so forth. Very important uh, in, in developing character and so forth, but it's, it's a parent delegated right. Now, friends, this is where you delegate to yourself somebody with the right to influence your thoughts and feelings. This is a, a very bizarre thing that we give friends this kind of power. It's our peer group. They have no divine right over us. God hasn't delegated anything to them. And yet we let them hold sway over us because their opinions matter so very much. Because we tend to think that other people's opinion of us determines our value. And we forget that God, who we can't see, is the only one making that evaluation. But that's power, and they have it, and our friends do, and we have to watch that. A self-delegate. I mean, I delegate to myself that someone else can have this power over me by influencing me with my thoughts and my feelings. And that is not of the same sort as a coach or a teacher or parents. Why do we fear respect these sources of authority? Why do we fear these people? What do they have over us? Well, parents have the rod. That's how God designed it. But they also have esteem. They have rapport. We have a relationship. And that, that's how we want to lead. That's how we want to exert our influence. So that they're trained to restrain their lusts and say yes to God and obey Him and serve Him. We want to do it not with the rod, but with our esteem. But sometimes the rod precedes the esteem. And as your bottom is steaming, you get a hug and we reestablish rapport. Coaches or teachers, they have grades and reports that get back to the parents. And that's the main power teachers have. And when the kids don't care about that anymore, you ask the teachers how it goes in the schools. It's awful. It's awful when the kids don't care about what's going to happen at home and the, the, the teachers have no recourse. I've been in a school recently where the only way the teachers could enforce authority is to speak in the most grading, I don't know how to say it. It's how, it. It feels like someone's dragging their fingers across the chalkboard when the teachers exert their authority because they have nothing else. There's no rod. There's no parents. There's just, I'm going to make it uncomfortable for you until you get in line for your bus. And the kids are like, okay. And I feel like we're in a, in a prison. And in many cases, they're in prison training. Now, I, I encourage you to check out... Um, Child Evangelism Fellowship and Good News Club opportunities because you will have the same experience I do if you work anywhere near uh, the New New England cities, I suspect. So grades and reports or esteem and rapport. Everybody know what rapport is? It means that we have a bond. We have something in common. It's like fellowship that we share and it grows. It's really the good stuff in friendship. Aren't we all training our children so that they can be our adult friends? Isn't that like the ultimate uh, payoff? I mean, the ultimate payoff is the kids do well for, their, for, their, for God's sake. But one of these little side payoff things is they, we get to have them as a friend that we respect. That's, that's kind of one of the dream things about raising kids. It's not always guaranteed. But it's something we're going for, right? We want to see adult friends that we can actually have rapport with. Somebody that we have things in common. I don't know, like parsing Greek verbs, right? Studying the language together. All right, so grades and reports. Coaches, well, their coach has the power of the playbook. He can say you can't play. You're on the bench. Your dad can complain, but the coach doesn't care because that's his favorite thing is to say, you're not the coach, get out of here. All right, that's coach power. Now, when I was a kid, coaches had a half-inch thick board that they, were, they had drilled holes in. They had a racquetball glove they used. When they used it, it had a racquetball strap around it. They would spin it around, get a good grip, and they could wail on you three times, and no one could say anything when I was a kid in, in high school and uh, in element, middle school. And I'll never forget uh, how many times I forgot a pair of socks or gym shorts or something and we could take the licks or the sit-ups. And at one point, I had done a lot of sit-ups. All right. Friends. <clears throat> what friends exert over us is power of social standing. They're, and this is only what they think of me. They're only their esteem, what their, their rapport with me. That's the only power friends have. Isn't that interesting? That's why your mom pleads with you, consider the source when someone says something that, that is bad, that, that makes you want to 
change your behavior or your attitude. Now, why do you act that way? Or why do, you, why do you go to church all the time? Or something like that. That they're trying to get you to change your behavior so that you'll be more suitable to their, uh, their favor, their esteem. And, and all, all you have with them, all they have over you is social standing. And one of the great secrets of life, if you haven't figured this out, if you're watching online, uh, I'm seeing some young people in the room that I'll have figured this out. It doesn't matter at all what anyone thinks about you if you're focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and what he thinks about you. Now, don't take that second part and throw it away and just not care about people. Oh, I must be suffering for Jesus as you're a jerk and a dirtbag. Don't do that. I'm saying if you're focused on the Lord and you're concerned what his opinion is, then you really need to not, not, you you need to not worry about what anyone else thinks. That's God's design. And you may be like Athanasius, Contramundi, one man standing against an Aryan world denying the deity of Christ. Hold out. Hold out for the truth and hold out in your faith in God. All right, authorities in my life. Now, what about the ultimate authority? That's back on page, we're on page three now. What about the ultimate authority? I believe this is a, a, a fair statement of orthodox theology god as our sovereign righteous loving omnipotent omniscient creator is the real authority okay so all these other things are delegated as we saw we fear him because he is who he is and fear is a biblical theological term that means my proper relationship to the creator as his creature it's it's not called the just the respect of the lord it's the fear of the lord and it is the appropriate response to almighty infinite creator Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Isn't that what our green box needs to be, knowledge? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So enter the Bible. What is it? What is the Bible? The Bible is God communicating his thoughts through human agents to a world that is basically not interested. I'm looking at a miracle of New England right now, a miracle in Connecticut is an interested group of people who will listen to this, something as involved as thinking about thinking tonight. But you all are. And, you, and every one of you knows this is for you. Even though the, nobody else is going to get this. It would be nice if we were in a stadium, swatting at mosquitoes. You couldn't see me. I was down at the, the bottom of the thing. And you had to, these giant jumbotron. Oh, it's, it's like watching at home. You see, see Pastor Dave up on the big screen and everybody was like hanging on every word about thinking through how to have our convictions that we then live out and, and what that looks like in the power of this. Wouldn't that be nice if that's the way people were thinking? It's, it, it, it's not. It's not our season. Uh, <laughs> it's just not, it, that's never going to happen. But this is better because this is going to happen. But I think everything we're saying is vital for sorting out how to deal with our problems, with our challenges, with the things that when sin comes knocking and says, feel this way, and I'm like, I'm not supposed to feel that way. I'm supposed to be in better control and, and responding to God. All right. How should God's word inform my worldview equipment, my green box of knowledge, commitments, convictions, principles, understanding? How should God's word affect that? Well, every day it should be more and more conforming my set, my worldview to God. So here's your green box. You are what you think. Your knowledge, understanding, beliefs, convictions, principles, and the green box there. Why is it green? I just said I thought you need to have a green box. And that would be different from the blue circle. All right. What is in there? Your conscience and your worldview. That's your set, okay? That's who you are and your convictions now. If I could show you how I was set up in my green box 20 years ago, it would be very similar to how it is now. It really would. But it would not be nearly as intricately refined it wouldn't be as categorized it wouldn't be as conformed to actual scriptural statements there'd be a lot of theology in there i love theology but but it's different as we grow that this is a growth process where should this worldview come from where should our worldview come from there it is that's the answer i need to get this in here. I need to know what God wants me to know about himself. I need to have his understanding. My beliefs need to conform to his character. This is what we're doing. 
And that's why you can be here and say, I got everything and I loved it and I needed it. And then you can leave here and blow it. Because this is your green box. We're, we're just getting started. So now for the hard part, the blue circle. The blue circle, which is your thinking and your feelings. So you have your, you have your green box and your little, uh, you got it directed into the thinking and feeling. That mess, that, oh, that disaster of what's going on in my heart at any given moment, um, unless I'm walking by the Spirit and abiding in Christ. Thank you, PowerPoint. All right. Now is when I start to bludgeon you with things that I think about this, the blue circle. Actually, it's, these are convictions that I have uh, understood from all this discussion of the Holy Spirit superintending our thoughts and actions. Thinking about thinking is only a little more fun than thinking about feeling. That's, that's kind of a joke. Everybody said amen to that one. All right. Both our thoughts and our feelings relate to that green box. They're supposed to. Remember, the box is supposed to connect. What I, my convictions are supposed to direct my thinking and my feeling. And it's not the same thing. What I, what I believe and what I choose in the moment are not the same thing. But it's supposed to be. And sometimes there's stuff in your green box that shouldn't be, and it comes out in your thoughts and feelings. All through here, thoughts are going to be blue, feelings are going to be red. Think through our, we think through our convictions and reason with them we think through these convictions and reason with them so you have this body of truth in your heart that you're supposed to bring into the situation and that recall that process is a thought process it's not a feel my way back into my memory verses it's a thought process and it's hard when i'm emotionally uh, overwhelmed or being attacked we also have emotional responses to these convictions but only if we think them through now think about this. You have things in your soul that you believe from God that you will cry about if you think about them long enough. It's how you are. You have things in your soul about God that he's told you that if you reflect on these things, you will go forth in joy and the joy of your salvation, as David says in Psalm 51. If you think about them, if you meditate on, on them enough. A lot of what we do here is refreshing what you have in there, reinforcing it, strengthening it. And we have an emotional response. That's how we're made. That's why we like to listen to the same song. But see, you've got to think it through. I have to have those words cycle back through my thinking. I'll give you an example of this. I have a favorite hymn. Okay, one of my very favorites is also I share with you. It is Son of God, You Now Are Seated uh, to, the war, to the music of High Friedal written by, um, oh, uh, I'll think of it in a little bit. A Norwegian composer who did some really great uh, hymnal music. Uh, Haldor. Haldor Lillenas. He also wrote um, Wonderful Grace of Jesus. I think it's the same. Maybe he didn't do High Friedel, but it's still, it's still uh, Norwegian. We have many different songs to those words, but in my mind, in my heart, when I hear all together now oh just me okay so whenever i hear that song i think about the session of christ and his exaltation and that that sort of on almost haunting tune the way my heart hears it that haunting tune grabs me and, it, and, and I have a, 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 a beautiful emotional response to the idea of Christ's exaltation, my position in him and my coming glorification to be raised and wherever Jesus is when he raptures us. And so these are emotional responses, but I've got to think through those. I've got to think through those words. It isn't just the, it isn't just the song. I mean, I might have a little bit of emotional pickup from just the, the melody, but I've got to have the words that remind me about the session of Christ and my exaltation with Christ and my coming glory with Christ. And that's what I mean. We have emotional responses to these convictions, these beliefs that we hold, but we have to think them through. And that's not what we feel like doing when we're feeling something intensely. We don't feel like stopping and thinking, but that's exactly what we need to do. I believe it was Thomas Jefferson, who I was recently told by my wife, said, count to 10, uh, if you're angry, count to 10 before you say anything. And if you're very angry, count to 100. 
So you have to stop and think before you give, just go forward with, with your emotions, especially when they're sinful emotions. So let's talk about suffering. You could get hurt in any way, large or small. What are your responsive feelings? What are your responsive feelings to getting hurt? You get hurt, someone calls you and says, I used to love you, now I hate you. Uh, someone calls and says, You've, uh, you have just lost everything. Uh, we'll be to collect what's left tomorrow. Or what, you, you, you hurt yourself and it hurts. Well, one thing you feel is pain. You also can have regret. I wish that hadn't happened. You can have sadness as a result. These are emotions, these are feelings. Sometimes you can be angry and that could head over towards sin. We're told to be angry yet sin not. And that would be anger about the things of God and, and, and indignation about him. But otherwise it's, it's probably sinful. And then certainly self-pity is sinful right? We all wallow in our own little sense of, oh, poor me, right? And we, we've got to, to recognize that's not the right way to think about things. If we're victors in Christ, we cannot be victims. So these are feelings. But if you think about your eternal salvation, the love of God, you can start to have different feelings from those thoughts because you're refreshed in the truth of your so great salvation. So you can experience joy and contentment and peace, see, because of that thought. But when you're hurt, you're not thinking, oh, I'm saved. You're thinking, this hurts. And so what has to happen is that's true, and let's leave it there as it is, and it hurts, and I'm not going to feel any better about it. And let's also recall, this I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. And, and remember the things of God that he's told us. So we have to go back to that treasure chest, that green box, and start dragging the truth out of it to bear on our situation, and we will eventually experience different feelings. There is no joy in suffering without thinking. Amen. We are now to the back and last page. Uh-oh. Why don't I spare us a little bit? This is who we are. I'm gonna, you, know the, you know the model. We'll, we'll skip the model for a second. Now for the hard part, okay. Sometimes we think, it's blank on both, incorrectly. Sometimes we think the wrong thought. It's not true. We tell ourselves a lie. We believe a lie Satan has told us. We think incorrectly. You ever get a math problem wrong? Amen. It's God saying, hey, you are not me. We think wrong thoughts. Sometimes we feel incorrectly. Is that possible? Can we feel inappropriate thoughts? Yeah. The Bible says not to. Right? Sometimes you can feel angry and you're wrong about it. Self-pity would be another example I would bring forth. Bitterness. Emotional sin, there is a, an emotional side to sin, a lot of sin. Sometimes we feel incorrectly. Well, I just feel like, uh, like, like they really didn't uh, take care of me enough in this situation. Hey, this thing wasn't about you. Yeah, but I really felt like I was left out. We were talking about Jesus. Yeah, but they didn't mention me. It was about Jesus. You see what I mean? Like, that's a wrong kind of feeling. That's an arrogance. That's a self-centeredness uh, that, that we easily slip into. You can feel wrongly about things. That's kind of scary. You mean we have to actually be in control of our feelings better? Yeah, the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. So the question is often, where did that thought or feeling come from? Where? Where did I get this idea, this feeling? Why am I feeling this way? Sometimes you're down and you need to ask that question. Say, God, help me sort this out. Because there's probably a thought process that isn't being done or it's being done wrongly and your, your feelings are, are off. Sometimes you need a good night's sleep. <laughs> I mean, you always need a good night's sleep, but sometimes that's the problem. Our sin nature serves up temptation, often in response to the world's stimuli. What that looks like, gentlemen, is you see something that you did not necessarily need to see, okay, regarding the opposite sex that is being constantly served up to us everywhere our eyes look. You see something that you didn't necessarily need to see and the world just stimulated something that is already in you that's your sin nature that is welcoming that stimulus. And that is a feeling. We feel that pressure. 
And it, it's true. We feel that pressure. And if you're a part of the follow your heart crowd and we just do whatever comes natural to us, you're going to do whatever comes old sin naturally to you. You'll just be following your flesh and blaming it on your feelings. Well, I just followed my heart and you went to the lake of fire. If that's what your, your real life is about. Unless you have faith in Christ and then you can't go to the lake of fire. Just make sure everybody knows that. All right. Our sin nature also suggests evil thoughts, as does the world. It, it, it serves up the wrong kind of thoughts all the time. And I don't mean, listen, I'm not talking about there's a second you and you that's speaking to you, like, like in the old cartoons, you've got the little you up here, that's the angel, and there's the devil, and they're talking to you. I don't mean you're hearing voices. Go see some, some help if you're hearing an actual voice. What I'm talking about is you will think something, a lot of times on the basis of negative feelings, you'll think something you should not think. And a lot of times I know it because you'll say it. And then we all know that there's something going on in your heart that shouldn't be going on in there because you've said something that you shouldn't be saying. You're not one of these more mature Christians that has it going on and never says it. <laughs> right? Like little kids, they just say whatever comes to mind. But this is, there are evil thoughts that your sin nature serves up to you and it suggests them and, and that's pressure. And I want to say there's a, war, there's a war on and the battlefield is your heart. Every moment. The battlefield is your heart. And you, you, Preston City, Connecticut people, you are under attack all the time. And you can't see what God sees about it. And if you could, you would be horrified. You would be in constant fear. And you would need Elisha to pray that we could see the rest of it. And then you'd say, okay, there's more angels than demons here. But the battlefield is the heart. And it's this. It's thinking and feeling. It's who wins and, and where does the sin nature versus the Holy Spirit uh, have the influence. In general, our thinking through God's word must take priority over our feelings. This to me is the number one message that American Christendom needs after a clear gospel presentation. Because this is what's missing. This is the, this is the big boat that everyone misses in popular evangelicaldom. That my feelings basically are irrelevant to what God has said is true. I don't feel like I like that. Well, that fine, tell the truth about that. But that doesn't establish any truth about the topic. What God said is where it is, and we need to adjust our feelings accordingly. So we have to think through God's word before we feel, is my argument. This is because our feelings are subjective, but God's revealed instructions are objective. Subjective. Easily changing based on the situation. Not really principle-focused, but... Just, just circumstantial, subjective. God's revealed instructions, though, are objective. When he says rejoice always, again, I say rejoice. I am now objectively responsible to feel a certain way all the time. Whew. I need something more stable than my circumstances or my life or even my own personality to help me through that. We're almost there, as your worksheet indicates. Emotion is not sinful, and this is really important to get. Emotion isn't sinful in itself. Your feelings aren't necessarily sinful just because you have them. But sin, your sin nature, tugs at our feelings and attacks us through that avenue. Definitely. And I think most of the big mistakes we've made in life, we've been made, we've made them because we felt like it, haven't we? Why do we feel like doing the thing we shouldn't have done? It's sin nature is tugging at your feelings. We're spiritually weak, flabby. You need to build some spiritual muscle so that the feeling, yeah, I get that. That is there. There is a temptation, a feeling, an urge that goes with it. But my walk with the Lord is so much stronger. My understanding of his truth and how I'm skilled at many experiences of bringing it to bear on the situation can counterbalance that feeling. Therefore, thinking biblically guards our hearts from the emotional path to personal sin and foolish choices. Emotional path to personal sin and foolish choices. Again, you don't generally sin because you don't feel like sinning. Usually you do it because you do feel like it. That's what I'm talking about. So there is definitely a pathway between your sin nature and your emotions to disobedience of God. We're talking about Christian spirituality. You've got to get a handle on the way the Holy Spirit through the Word of God relates to our emotions. And that is the path of thought, thinking God's thoughts to respond emotionally to those thoughts. Everybody got their, their blanks filled in? 
How many more, Janice? Okay, good. Excellent. Four more? Okay. You know, let's pick this up next time. I'm just kidding. Let's, let's knock it out. So. We're done. The emotional avenue to personal sin is a consequence of failing to think and feel second. To think first and feel second. I believe that. that I, think about it. You give in to temptation because you feel like it, because you're stressed that way in your feelings. And you don't think. You just say, oh, I, I just feel like it. The trick is to think first. But I don't feel like thinking. Exactly. But I know from God's word that I need to. And that discipline, some of you, that discipline comes more naturally than others. Some of you are, are embrace that and you feel like not feeling and thinking. But I'm telling you, if you can learn to turn it off for a second and think what God has said, just get some, get some space, ask God for some clarity and go for some peace. That's a feeling we need in the moment when we're stressed. Start thinking, um, this is the way out. If our thinking is the protector and director of the heart, then our feelings must take a responsive role to thinking. Isn't that about what I'm saying? Think first, feel second. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying your feelings are sinful. I'm saying sin attacks you through your feelings. I'm not saying feelings are bad. I'm saying feelings connected to your sin nature destroy you. So you have to be spiritual. You have to be thinking God's thoughts and feeling in response. And then you're a balanced person. You're stable. When we fail through personal sin, this relationship between thinking and feeling has been reversed generally. Reversed is your little blank there. It's been reversed. And I have heard this called emotional revolt of the soul. Where I am saying no to God because my feelings are in charge instead of the thinking of God's word that the Holy Spirit has put in me. I'm rev- I'm, my inner person is in revolt because it's upside down. It's a Genesis 3.16 problem. Is that fair? It's all been application. This is all the application of how to walk by the Spirit according to the Word of God. And my, my picture, and in closing, my little picture is designed to show you that there's a lot more involved There's a lot more involved in coming to right choices and behaviors than spending time in the Word. I would also say that this part, this green box, is absolutely indispensable to getting the actions that please and serve God. You have to be constantly filled by the Spirit with the Word so that He superintends your wanting and doing it, and then you, in your volition, are choosing and acting. All abiding in Christ all depending on the indwelling spirit. My intention tonight is to focus you a little bit, to sharpen your focus on that essential task of switching from feelings that will destroy you to the thoughts that will save you. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your thoughts that you've given us through your word, for the way we've been able to think them through and compare them and apply them tonight. Father, we do want to treasure your word in our heart that we might not sin against you and be used by your spirit to bear the fruit that pleases you and glorifies you. To the glory of you and to your Son, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.